the letter as we begin chapter 4. And says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Yodia, I plead with Syntyche, that they would be of one mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. The thing that strikes me about this passage is with the incredible suddenness that Paul has been talking about heavenly things. He's been talking about our citizenship is in heaven. He's going to transform our lowly body so that we will be like his glorious body. And he goes immediately from that to this local church dispute. Because for Paul, the issue of the church is unity. That we would be united in Christ and find that unity among ourselves as he lives within us. C.S. Lewis has a wonderful essay on people who are heavenly minded, and he says, what I've found is the people who think most about heaven get the most done in the body of Christ. <laughs> we focus on the things that are above. Paul said the same thing to the Colossians. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If we are aware of that citizenship in heaven will be a lot more focused on what we can do now, how we can make, as we prayed in the Lord's Prayer, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we live toward that unity. For Paul, the church is about people being united in Christ. Back in chapter 2 of Philippians, we read the very same kind of thoughts. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That'll keep us going till Judgment Day. Trying to work that attitude into our lives constantly that we would be aware of his presence. I notice that Paul doesn't choose a side in this dispute between Iodia and Syntyche. The news of this dispute has reached him clear off in Rome, some say Ephesus, but whatever, he was in prison, and the news has come to him. And from prison, he gives them these guidelines of how to walk in the unity of the Lord. In the first few verses that we just heard, in the Lord, verse 1, verse 2, verse 4, you are in the Lord. Verse 7, you are in Christ Jesus. 
we recognize that this unity becomes true when we abide in him. Austin, let's go ahead and put up that first slide of Paul's advice that comes to them from prison. How do we live together in this unity? How do we start it? He starts out by saying rejoice. Find reasons to praise. He began that right at the start of his letter. He says to them, I, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always remember your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Do you remember the first days in Philippi? First church that's begun in Europe. First convert. Lydia is this God-fearing woman who has a Bible study down by the river. She's a wealthy merchant. Paul talks to her about the fullness of the Spirit and the message of Christ, and she becomes the first convert. Then the slave girl casts the demon out of her. It's thrown in jail for that one. The next convert comes in that setting, the jailer. Could you have picked three more diverse people in all of Philippi than this wealthy merchant, this demon-possessed slave girl, and the Philippian Roman jailer? That was the heart of the church. And he said, you partnered with me from that very first day. He refers throughout the letter how they've helped him various times. When he was in Thessalonica, they sent him love offerings. They have sent him the comfort now of his fellow workers and more support. He says, rejoice. As I rejoice in you, rejoice in each other, rejoice in the Lord, and encourage these people who are having this dispute among you. Encourage them and be of one heart. He says, let your gentleness, one translation says, your sweet reasonableness. <laughs> let your sweet reasonableness be evident to all. Gentleness, it's part of the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's what flows from us if the Spirit lives within us. So I've been thinking about what should be flowing from us if indeed the Spirit lives within us in unity. Paul says that gentleness should be evident to everyone, for the Lord is near. He says, deal with your anxiety with prayer and thanksgiving. Present your request to the Lord in gratitude, recognizing that he is the one who meets our needs in Christ Jesus. He says, allow your heart and your mind, your emotions and your intellect to be protected in Jesus Christ. Allow God to guide your heart. Now remember, this is written from prison. <laughs> Paul has all kinds of reasons to be anxious, but he says, no, I will not. I will give it to the Lord. I'll respond to his peace. And I think people should always respond to us as believers as how can you be at peace in the midst of this situation? If we go through any kind of crisis and demonstrate the Lord's peace, it's going to get the attention of non-believers. How can you do that? I get thrown off by the least anxiety. How can I have God's peace? And it's opportunity for us to then demonstrate that peace by our very lives. Paul says the peace he brings is beyond understanding. It's not something we can reason. It's his peace that just bathes over us, the love that he grants us by his spirit. And again, peace, part of the fruit of the spirit. It's what flows from us when the spirit is within us. And then he invites them in the next paragraph to allow God guarding his emotions and intellect by control of his thoughts part of self-control, which is part of the fruit of the Spirit. We keep circling back to this. It's what God says lives within us. 
what Jesus promised when he said, I've been with you, but now I can be within you by my spirit. And that spirit of Christ will flow from us. And so he begins this thought control with his list. These things that are true instead of the spirit of falsehood. We need discernment, don't we? To find what is true in the midst of all kinds of different messages we get from our world. He said, focus on what is noble set over against what is frivolous. Give yourself to the things that really matter. Paul says to young Timothy, take hold of life that is truly life. Set our priorities in the right place. Whatever is right versus whatever is convenient or comfortable. Whatever is pure in our thoughts and our actions in contrast with the uncleanness around us in our world. He says, focus on these things that come from God, whatever is lovely or that which is promoted by love and promotes love, in contrast to that which is strife and discord in our world. Focus on what is admirable, he says. <laughs> Look for the best in others. And again, set against a spirit of criticism and anger that we see so often around us. Whatever is excellent in attitude or action, as opposed to the easy road, the road of least resistance. Seek the excellence of God as we walk with him day by day. And finally, he says, whatever is praiseworthy or positive against that which is discouraging. Satan would bring discouraging things and try to defeat us. God says, focus on my positive for you. And so Paul encourages them in verse 9, use your resources, whatever you have learned or received from me, what you have heard with your ears, what you have seen with your eyes, put them into practice. He's saying live out your belief. It's the same thing that Jesus says in John chapter 13, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. God takes thoughts and says put them into action. Don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. The world's not going to respond to our words if they're not demonstrated in our actions. So we seek to show that Christian action. Well, speaking of the words of Jesus, let's kind of upstage Paul here. What does Jesus say about anxiety and worry? <laughs> Peter has told us we can cast all of our cares on him, all of our anxiety on him, because he cares for us. Jesus said in the parable of the sower, the seed that springs up but then is choked out by the thorns that grow up. Jesus identifies those thorns as the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of material things. George Williamson presented a beautiful picture of this in one of the recent chapel services of the, the things that can choke out God's word to us if we're not careful. <clears throat> but Jesus' words on worry are pretty clear to us as well. Therefore, he says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. <laughs> Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. <laughs> Are you not much more valuable than they? <laughs> and why do you worry about clothes? Look at the lilies of the field. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Now, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? <laughs> so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, 
and the Heavenly Father knows that we need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So let's put up that slide, Austin, of what Jesus points out to us about worry and trust as he gives us those words. The focus here is that worry will deceive us. The deception is that wealth can somehow shield us from the unknowns of the future. If I just build up enough stockpile of wealth, I can just meet any problem that comes. (laughs) It just deceives us that material things are the answer. Jesus said, don't store up treasures on earth. Store up treasures in heaven. Don't focus on the things of now. He says, I'll take care of that for you. Just don't fret about it. Don't worry about it. Worry deceives us. But then worry enslaves us. It traps us. (laughs) The more we think we've got to maintain things on our own, the more we worry about the things we're not maintaining well enough. Earl Lee, one of my heroes, lifetime missionary in India and longtime pastor of Pasadena First Church, wrote a little book on Psalm 37, Psalm of David. And in it, he brings out the four phrases of that psalm that just leap off the page. He says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in the Lord, delight in the Lord, and rest in the Lord. And with each of those, and at each point of that cycle, he says, don't worry, don't fret. Commit your way to the Lord. Don't worry about it. Trust in the Lord. He'll take care of it. Delight in the Lord. Don't you fret about it. He's got you. And rest in the Lord. And a new crisis comes up, you go right back into the cycle again. Committed to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Delight in Him and rest in Him. And it just keeps coming. It's a way to live our lives and not be enslaved by anxiety third thing Jesus says is that worry aligns us with the sinful world. He says the sinful world is running after all those things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He's aware of our needs. He's aware of who we are. And he gives us the key in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be taken care of. You will be a miserable Christian if you try to seek something else first. (laughs) Seek God first. He'll take care of the other details. So in contrast to worry, Jesus says trust is the thing to focus on. What does trust do for us? One of the first verses I learned in Nazarene Sunday School was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your path straight. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in God. He will guide you. He will make your path right. And so, trust secures the needs of our lives. He says he will meet all of our needs. Paul says it later in the fourth chapter that we're looking at this morning. He will meet all your needs in Christ Jesus. Now, differentiate between wants and needs. (laughs) We face this a lot in our lives, don't we? I want this, I want this, I want this. What do I really need? He says he will meet all of our needs in Christ Jesus. It separates us from the sinful world that's seeking after things rather than seeking after God. And then trust secures the peace of God. 
Paul describes it as a peace that passes understanding. The God of peace will guard you, and the peace of God will fill you. (laughs) Isaiah knew it in the Old Testament, one of my favorite scriptures from Isaiah. He says, I will give you perfect peace. He gives two prerequisites to that. If you trust in God, and if you put your mind on him. If I focus on him and trust in him, I can be at peace. I won't be fretting over the issue. I'll recognize God's bigger than the issue. When I give in to anxious worry, I'm either saying, God, you don't know my need, or God, you don't care about my need. I don't want to say either of those things to God. I want to acknowledge that he knows me completely, and I want to acknowledge that his love for me is eternal. He will care for my needs. Paul said in Romans 8, He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also along with Christ freely give us all things? The God who created us, the God who redeemed us, is the same God who will sustain us, who will keep us in the midst of times of crisis. And so Jesus says, don't worry. He gives the birds as an example. Now, he doesn't tell the birds don't work. He says he feeds the birds, but he doesn't drop the worm into the nest. The bird goes and finds it. He provides for us, but he tells us, be at work, be in my kingdom. He says in verse 7 of that Matthew, 27 of that Matthew 6 passage that worry is pointless. Say, so who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? <laughs> Not only that, but medical science would tell us worrying takes hours away from our lives, not adding them to our lives. We need to find that trust in him. And so the creator speaks to our worth, compares us to birds and flowers, and then he says, guess what? You're the crown of creation. You're what I say is very good. If I care for these little things, won't I care for you? And then he says a phrase that I just hate to hear in Scripture. But we hear it over and over about us. <clears throat> oh, you of little faith. <laughs> I don't want to hear those words very often from God. <laughs> I want to be somebody with great faith in him. It struck the disciples. It's recorded in, both, in all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The synoptics talk about when Jesus falls asleep in the boat. You know, they're going across Galilee and Jesus is asleep after a grueling day. And they wake him up. Master, don't you care if we perish? And it's amazing. Jesus doesn't start making excuses. Oh, I'm sorry, I had a rough day. I was tired. I should have been paying attention. (laughs) He says, where is your faith? Don't you know that I will care for you? Hasn't it been shown to you over and over again? And let's take inventory from our own lives and say, where is our faith? Hasn't God met our needs over and over and over again? Will he not meet our needs again? I ask myself, what have I learned during this time of crisis in our church? I have learned something I read on our bulletin board in the office every morning. We are better together. I have learned what a deep love I have for this body of believers 
and I've just been here five and a half years. Think of those of you who've been here five, ten, longer than that, times that. How important this fellowship is to us and how God will guard that. As Dave was saying in his update, we are together. We love God and we love each other. I've also learned how fragile we are. I need God. I need the unity of the Spirit. We need each other. God teaches us lessons that are crucial for us in times of crisis. And then he just says, worrying about it's not going to help a bit. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Focus on today. Now, Jesus doesn't say don't plan. Jesus told in his parables all kinds of planning situations. He talked about patches on garments and leaven in bread and a search for a lost coin and a search for a lost sheep and all kinds. Even when Jesus is on the cross dying for our sins, he is planning for the future of Mary and entrusts her into the care of John the Beloved. It's not a matter of don't plan, don't prepare. It is don't fret. Where is our faith? Something will be central in our lives. If it's not Jesus, it'll be something less. Let's pray that God would focus on what is central for us as a family of God. Father, we come into your presence and we are aware of your grace, grace which sustains us in the midst of uncertainty, grace which lifts us up. It's the grace that saved us when we were lost in our sin. It is the grace that will keep us from now until you come for us. And Father, I know that Paul prayed for unity in this church. He didn't say you are one under my leadership because I established this church. He says we are one in Christ Jesus. So Father, I pray that we would see our lives centered in you and not be people of little faith, but people of great faith in a time that demands great faith. We love you, Father. And we want to give this day of fellowship, this day of rejoicing, this day when we focus on our children and teens, a wonderful sense of Christian fellowship. But as we continue to walk this road together, may we as a church find our unity in you. Ease our anxiety, as Paul promised his friends in Philippi, and bring us to you. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. We want to shift gears on you now without a typical kind of benediction. In a bit, the children are going to be joining us, and we're going to see a film about uh, camp. But I kind of just tell you my story of why I believe in uh, children's and youth camp. I was eight years old, my first children's camp. My brother had been able to go for two years before me and I had heard all the stories and just longed to be there and all the fellowship and all these Christian kids all over the place. And I'll still remember that campfire service when Hal Bonner invited me and invited anyone who would turn their lives over to the Lord and be changed forever. And as an eight-year-old boy gave my life to Christ. And for these 65 years since, he has been my Savior and my Lord. And I believe 
in what we do in children and youth camps. From that year when I was eight until I was 48, every summer I was part of a youth camp or a children's camp, either attending or directing or speaking or something because I believe in it. But if I had been that a hundred times, I could have never repaid what that changed in my young heart as an eight-year-old boy. And we're going to be raising funds all kinds of ways today, and all of them go so our kids and our teens can be in camp and be encountered with the same things they hear on our campus every week, but in a setting that God has proved over and over he uses to his glory. So I'd encourage you to stay and be a part of that. If you can't stay, make sure you leave your donation before you do. <laughs> but let's just rejoice in what God is going to do with our children and our teens. We have a video that's going to uh, show you a little bit of the mood of camp and what it's all about. And then we'll hear from Jordan and Lexi on children's and youth camps. <laughs> 